you say that parents need to give their kids agency. What do you mean by that? There's a parenting agenda that says, I'm going to help my kid learn to cope with life. I'm so concerned that what we're doing in schools all the way through the universities right now are counter to what we know the psychological science teaches us. Who would have thought 18 months ago, 20, whatever it's been, that we would be sitting here today still in a pandemic, still in partial shutdown, still with kids going to school, at least going to school, but with mask on, some still with social distancing, some kids still taking the option of remote learning and all. When this started, I think everybody thought, well, maybe a few weeks, maybe not. But here we are, and we're approaching the end of another school year. And I am very, very concerned about it. And I am very fortunate, very blessed to have a good friend and colleague in Dr. Michelle Borba. She is here today, and let me tell you a little about her if you don't know. She is an internationally renowned educator. She's an award-winning author. Her current book, by the way, I'll show you right now, is Thrivers. Listen, she is not a theoretician. Thrivers is a great book. It is the surprising reasons why some kids struggle and others shine. And we're going to talk about that some today. But she is recognized for her solution-based strategies to strengthening children's character, their resilience, and reducing peer cruelty. And when I say she's not a theoretician, of course she does research. Of course she has empirical underpinnings to everything she does. But she puts verbs in her sentences instead of just standing up and talking about theory. She offers realistic research-based advice that every parent can use. I don't care if you got one child, two children, five children. And she takes it from a career working with over a million parents and educators the world over. In fact, we're finding her today all the way in Abu Dhabi. And she was just here in my studio on Monday of this week. So shame on me planning wise. Uh, Dr. Borba, thank you so much for joining me today. You are so welcome. Thank you. I am so thankful. It's 1 a.m. where you are right now. Yeah, but I'm on the right time zone. Back to you. So thank you. And this is such a crucial, crucial topic. I'm so glad that you are bringing this up because, boy, our kids are hurting and it's time for us to step up to the plate. Well, it really is. And I think sometimes parents are looking at their kids and struggle and thinking, you know, it's just us. It's just me. I've done something wrong as a parent or my child has a flaw. But this, in fact, is a national mental health crisis. Is that an overstatement? No, not at all. In fact, I, I don't at this point think it just is a national mental health crisis. Every country I'm working in, from Ireland to the Philippines to Vietnam, I just flew into Abu Dhabi. They're all concerned about their kids. we got to get on board together on this one. And it's showing up in all kinds of negative behavior among yes. children. I'm hearing educators saying that with kids coming back to school, they're seeing crying behavior. They're seeing a, a clingingness. They're seeing more bullying behavior. They're seeing more depression, more anxiety. These aren't just statistics. They're actually observing this in the classroom and the hallways. Yeah, I think the, the thing that also is what parents and teachers particularly are saying, they're just not the same as they used to be. And rightly so, they've hit a real trifecta of loneliness, fear, and uncertainty. And if they haven't had protective buffers to be able to help them learn how to cope with the stress in life, it just keeps falling apart and the stress keeps building. Is this maybe going to be the impetus for us to add into the curriculum in schools, teaching kids how to live? I know we need to teach them like reading, writing, and arithmetic, geography, biology, but is this maybe going to be the impetus to start teaching kids life skills, how to recognize when behavior is anxiety, when it's depression, when it 
has gone beyond just daily annoyances to the point of actually being worthy of asking for help from the counselors or running up a flag to their parents that, hey, I've gone beyond just ups and downs. I'm actually experiencing some mental health problems. I think absolutely 100% because I've been doing focus groups, Dr. Phil, that's been fascinating. And if you really wanted to know or confirm that there's a problem, ask the kids. The first thing that many of them are saying is we're just not prepared for life. We're really well-educated. We've got the test scores down. We're okay with the grades, but we just don't know how to handle the bumps and the bruises of life. Many of them also blame us. We've been helicoptered too much. Our parents have been rescuing us. I know they don't want us to fail, but what's going to happen when the big bumps come along the way? And those are kids, quote unquote. I think it's time for the reboot. That first, we've got to keep in mind that, yeah, we've gone through two years of a pandemic. But honestly, it's a very uncertain, fear-based new kind of a world that who knows what next is coming down the road, which means GPA and test scores are not the only thing that's going to help our kids. They have got to be better prepared for life. Well, they're not. And I think we're going the other way because I look at what's happening at the university levels. And let's jump up to Mm -hmm. that for a minute. I always thought universities are where you went to get educated and hear differing points of view where you could have your point of view, you could hear another point of view, you could have debates, you could test out your thinking. But now it seems like a third of students say it's okay to shout down a speaker that has a different point of view than you do. Universities are saying we'll provide a safe space for you to go if you're traumatized by someone else having a different view or value than you. And then We're going to dump these kids out the other end of the educational chute into the real world where they're not providing them safe spaces. They're expecting them to get out in the rough and tumble world and compete, and we haven't prepared them to deal with the fact that everybody doesn't think like them. Everybody doesn't agree with them, and they call that trauma. Hell, that's not trauma. That's just people disagreeing with them. You can have two different points of view or five or six, and we're not teaching them to deal with anxiety or depression or feeling marginalized or lonely or whatever. We've got to teach them coping skills, even cognitive behavioral therapy, where we can teach them to reframe issues. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, My head is nodding up and down and up and down and up and down. There's so many points on this one. First of all, we think sometimes that this pandemic caused it all. But if you rewind this, what we begin to look at, what Harvard was telling us and Yale was telling us, that the number one time our American kids were most likely to drop out was end of freshman year, first semester of college. That was 10 years ago. They ran out of mental health facilities. They ran out of counselors because they said the kids are great in terms of the GPA. They're 4.0s or 7.3s but they get their first B plus and they're just dumbstruck. Risk adverse, uh, Yale University, if you don't tell a kid there's going to be an emotionally charged episode in a book, you can be put up for charges in your Yale in terms of uh, being a a professor. We're talking things fall apart and to kill a mockingbird. Resilience is something you learn through experiences. And one of the biggest things I think we've done is, yeah, we love our children dearly, but if we keep trying to overprotect them and bubble wrap them, the first little challenge comes away, they're going to just fall through. We rob children of learning resilience by trying to help them think it through and protect them too much. Well, that's what I'm concerned about. In some of the statistics, and you actually provided these from some of the sources that I've read as well. Between March and October of 2020, we saw mental health hospital emergencies among kids rose 24% for kids 5 to 11, 31% 12 to 17. We've seen more than 50% increase in suspected suicide attempt emergency visits in girls 12 to 17 in 2021 compared to 2019. Clear evidence that kids are having emotional problems that they just simply weren't having before. Now, I know they were having these before, but not at this level. And we're also, you mentioned this the other day, 
we're not only seeing them not progress developmentally, we're seeing them regress. Yes. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think the first thing is you've nailed it. A crisis only amplifies a pre-existing problem. So all of those issues of the upsell in going to ER visits are almost a predictable case. But after a while, the other thing, Dr. Phil, that happens is a kid, when they don't have resilience and they don't have buffers, it's just that they're all of a sudden are going to start falling apart. What we're now seeing is that children are regressing in terms of where they used to be in learning. We sort of knew that one. But the second thing is emotionally regressive. So we're seeing a lot of parents saying, oh my gosh, he's so irritable lately, or he was toilet trained for the little one, and now all of a sudden he's wetting the bed again. Or she just is having these temper tantrums that I thought she was fine. Loneliness, the social anxiety is starting to kick in. So all of the traits the kid used to have or the abilities they used to have are starting to slide backward. And it it just means that they are to the point where they don't have any level of any more coping skills and it's all fallen through. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. You talk about something called agency here, and I'm talking to Dr. Michelle Borba. She's an educational psychologist. I'm pulling heavily from her book, Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and others shine. And I highly recommend it. I've read it cover to cover, every word. It needs to be a manual that you keep with you. I said the other day, you want to buy this book, you want to read it, then you want to buy three copies and give it to your best friends because they will thank you forever for doing that. You say that parents need to give their kids agency. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that we've discovered, the fascinating thing about resilience is it's really been evidence-based on why some kids do struggle and others shine. And one of the highest correlations of a thriver to me is a kid who says, I got it. I got this, mom. I'll get through it. Agency are the skill sets, not GPA or test scores, but the ability maybe to know I've got a problem. So, okay, I'm going to start being a problem solver. I'll figure another way through. Or I've got stress or, gee, this is really tough. I'm going to take a deep breath. They've got the self-control or the coping strategies to be able to use in the moment. And that is what gets them through. Uh, My thing when I was writing Thrivers was to realize the commonality is not only agency, but Thrivers are also made, not born. It was not that they were born with the DNA or you had a certain zip code that got you through it. Some phenomenal researchers have been studying kids, homelessness children, poverty, kids who are growing up in war zones. Emmy Werner is a goldmine. For 40 years, she studied the same cohort of kids who shouldn't have made it. She's shocked because about the third of the way through it, she said, my gosh, many of them are. Why? And she finds the commonality are two things. And I think this is the piece on what's going on with our kids. First, they have caring champions who don't have the stress levels, meaning the adult, who are there in their lives and refuse to give up on the children. The second one, though, is they've learned protective buffers, how to cope, how to handle the stress, how to say no, all of those things that you don't learn overnight, Dr. Phil. But something along the way, there's a parenting agenda that says, I'm going to help my kid learn to cope with life. And that becomes part of the key parenting agenda for the child. That resonates so much with me because I can tell you, I think I've really been blessed in that I can honestly say everything I've ever done, I believe, has prepared me for what I'm now doing. And that wouldn't be true if I had been an engineer for a while and then jumped to this. But everything I've ever done every life experience I've ever had, it seems to have prepared me for now working with the people that I work with because even the negatives. My dad was a really bad alcoholic. As we know, children of alcoholics become very independent because you can't count on your parent. Mm -hmm. And my mother was loving but very passive. My dad was an alcoholic and very absent or combative. 
So I, at a very early age, had to become resilient. If I was going to get something done, I had to do it. There wasn't anybody else. And then, fortunately, I had some athletic ability, so I had coaches that took a real interest, and they put their arm around my shoulder and said, okay, we're going to help you get through this. And it's the formula you just described you know, a kid who says, I got this, I'm going to figure it out. And then a supportive adult that says, you know, I'm going to help you help yourself do this. And it really did turn into resilience from a very young age. And it wasn't somebody helicoptering. I had to figure it out. And that's so important. And we're not letting kids do that today. Exactly. I love the pronoun I. When you said I, I'm going, yeah, that's exactly it. I had the same thing happen in my own life. My dad was an amazing human being. He lived to be 100, but he was always a superintendent and a writer. And I always saw this calm guy. But I came home from college one day, Miss History major. I came home from college and he was pacing with a Newsweek magazine in his hand and it had three babies on the cover. He looked at me and he looked at the cover, pointed it and said, Don't buy into this, Michelle. It said the first three years of a child's life make or break them. If this were true, I'd be dead today. Now, I'm looking at him. What do you mean? I didn't know about his childhood. He said, I came over. My dad was destitute. My mother was destitute. They didn't speak English. My dad died when I was two. I had to be put in an orphanage. But it was the caring nuns who got me through who were empathetic. It was the neighbor next door who taught me, Danny, you can do it. Everybody was the caring champion. The librarian would sneak me books and say, Danny, you can read. You've got this. He said, that's how I made it, Michelle. And that's exactly what I think we need to do. Too much of the helicoptering backfires on our children. It does because they don't learn. I think it's so important that kids have the opportunity to observe themselves mastering, overcoming things in their life, and then they can say, I did that. I think it starts with the kid walking into school in kindergarten by themselves, and they say, I walked in that big building by myself. I went in that classroom by myself. I laid on my mat and took my nap by myself. They observe themselves do that, and so their self-esteem goes up. That's exactly it. And we didn't give them the gold stars and we didn't have to keep telling them over and over and over and over. It was built confidence from the inside out. I love that concept. I think here's here's the takeaway right this minute. So if we really want that kind of a kid, maybe here's our aha moment of starting to do never do for your child what the child can do for himself. And maybe what we do is we start looking at which skills are our kids missing or which skills are we always doing for our kids that we should step back. For instance, the kids are saying they're not ready for high, they're not ready leaving high school to go off to college. Okay, maybe this is the week to teach him how to do the microwave. Show him, do it with him. Then once he knows how to do it, step back and never again. How to fill up the gas pump, how to set up goal setting, how to make your own bed. I don't care what the age of the child is, but we've got to stop always doing for our children if we want to propel them from the inside out. That's what the real confidence level is. Yeah, I'm so concerned that what we're doing in schools all the way through the universities right now are counter to what we know the psychological science teaches us. I was talking to Dr. Mannion recently, and we talked about this. If somebody has been really violently attacked or maybe they've been raped or something like that and you're going into a class where that's going to be some of the content letting them know that and maybe they decide that's not the class for them right now totally get it 100 percent. give them a chance to heal from the inside out but some of these things that are just political views or economic views that they say, well, that's traumatizing to me. I'm going to need to be in a safe space. I'm sorry. That's counter to psychological science. In psychological science, if there's something that is not a genuine threat and someone is reacting to it, in psychological science, we say we do exposure therapy. We do systematic desensitization. 
We do even immersion therapy. We do all different kinds of things to get them to where they can accommodate to that. They can cope with that. But what's happening in the educational system right now is we're protecting them from that instead of teaching them to cope with that. That yeah. seems to be wrong to me. It just yeah, seems it to backfires. me wrong. Exactly. Oh, we are so online on that one. I, first of all, I think what we've done is we've misinterpreted trauma. There are some children who clearly have been through trauma. Other kids, I think it's grief. Grief is going to dissipate. But the majority of our kids are going through disappointment. And one of the ways you get through life, uh, I learned this again when I was working on Army bases. Navy SEAL said, you learn to chunk the fear. So what do you mean you chunk the fear? I said, well, our goal is to get through the battle. But if we thought about the whole battle, it'd be overwhelming. So instead, what we do is think of it in little chunks, like I'm going to get through the first five minutes, then the next 10 minutes, then the next. That is a fabulous thing to tell a child. I know you're overwhelmed getting to school. So put your foot out the door. The next day, put two feet out the door. Next day, walk down to the mailbox. Chunk the child's fear, but don't sugarcoat it and bubble wrap him so he's having to not do it at all. He'll never be able to get through little teeny safe risks at a time till he finally says, I got it. I did it. Yeah, and that's the psychological science, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical therapy. You deal with the reality that's facing you. And with the world opening back up right now, which pretty much we're seeing, and I hope it continues. You say that parents expect their kids to just snap out of it after two years of pandemic, but you have talked to so many of these kids, and you say they're suffering from really severe separation anxiety. What do parents do to transition them back into their lives? If you're dealing with, first of all, you always figure out as the mom, as the dad, what's the one little thing that's really causing this kid stress? For a lot of kids, it's they've been faced with the loneliness. They haven't seen friends for a while. So now they're in a state of angst of now how do I get back on the scene? The fascinating thing on this one is loneliness is all matter of learning social skills by practicing them, exercising them. And you can do that in your own home. The three most highly correlated traits of well-liked kids, they say hello, they encourage one another, hi-fi, good job. And they always look at the color of the talker's eyes. They don't look down. That makes you look wimpy. You look up. Now, how do you do that at home? Not like it's six o'clock. We're going to learn how to be you know, socially tapped. It's like, okay, we're going to go to the supermarket today. But as we do it, or as we walk through the street, let's start modeling those skills. The first step is just get them back on the track so they feel safer and more secure with one another face-to-face. -face. They've been looking at screens, a lot of them, for two years, and it's a little bit threatening. But don't say you don't have to, sweetie pie. Let's bring over the one play date. Let's start playing. Maybe you're overwhelmed for two hours. So bring the play date over for 15 minutes and gradually keep stretching them. Don't bubble wrap them. Figure out how to help them get back on track, slowly taking them from where they are and keep on supporting them until they get there. Yeah, that's the successive approximations. Maybe they used to take it for granted to be three hours or spend the night with a friend. So maybe now you do 15 minutes and 30 minutes, then you go to the mall with them and take them both to the food court or something and let them spend time with more stimulation. But now you did something that I found really intriguing. You have gone around the country, either in person or Zoom, and sat down with groups of kids. You spent half hour, hour with these kids, and one of the things you asked them was, give me a word that describes you, just one word that describes you right now. What did they tell you? Number one, I don't care where it is and what zip code, overwhelmed. Unbelievable. It's like the top one that keeps coming up. I'm just overwhelmed. Um, another one that keeps coming up is stress, lonely, um, unmotivated. Some kids call it lazy, other kids call it unmotivated, but it's almost pessimistic. I don't know if I can, this world is so different, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. They're so honest that when you ask them, they always come up with the, here's what I am, and then we do the next question, so what's causing it? And the fascinating thing is very often it's the overwhelm because I don't know where to start. I have so much work and I'm never going to be able to catch up. You know, Dr. Phil, another one that keeps coming up is I don't want to disappoint my parents. 
Really? I'm really worried about uh, they put so much time and energy into it. I know grades are important, but I just don't know if I can keep doing this. We have got to, first of all, recognize our kids are struggling. They're hurting. And some of them are afraid to tell us where they're at. So this is maybe the first step is step in and realize your kid is not where they used to be. Look, if you're talking about a 10-year-old, over the last two years, a 10-year-old has already lost 20% of their life in the last two years if they haven't had the experience. You're not going to have the kid where he was before. You got to take him from where they are now and gently keep helping them get back on track. One thing you may want to do is you know, connect with the teacher and find out what the child's current abilities are, if it's learning. Or if you're seeing the child at home, how's the child behaving in the classroom? You and I know kids behave differently in different situations. So <laughs> yeah. find out where what's going on and what others who care desperately about your kids are seeing, because that's going to help you know, so what am I going to do about it? Well, when they said overwhelmed, and I know you followed up with questions, were they overwhelmed with the academic gap or was it also the social anxiety? Was it all of this rolled in together? Had they lost so much? schoolwork-wise that they didn't think they could ever catch up? What was it that was overwhelming to them? If it's a junior, if a junior in high school or a senior, they're scared to death about what's the next path. Am I going to make it into college? How am I going to go there? But I think what's happening with the overwhelmed point is it's the buildup. It's not one thing. It's the steady buildup. I always tell parents it's like building blocks. When you see your kid playing with the building blocks, think of that each building block as one stressor. And you keep building and building. And then Who's pulling one out or who's putting something in its place? After a while, pretty soon they tumble. And that's what the kids are saying. Where do I start? The homework is so much. That's the first thing. And they'll tell you, and I can't focus like I used to be. So it's their attention span is also shorter than they were. If that stress is building, what goes? We all know it. We're zoomed out. There are our own stresses going up. Watch out. They're also sleep deprived. So they're not sleeping as they used to do because their stress is building. It's all this cumulative concept that's coming up. Well, you said you asked them about stress and they said before COVID, they rated themselves an average of five, during COVID, seven. And now as they're coming out on a one to 10, they were nine to 11. That's the shocker. I was, whoa, because I was writing that on chart paper. Each one of these is a focus group of 10, 15 kids that are representing the pulse of their, their, uh, their school. But when I kept looking at it, why is it rising when it looks like we're starting to move out of COVID? We're now looking at what we call the aftermath, I think. It's the effect that they realize they're almost to the point where maybe we're going to be safe. Maybe we're going to take our masks off. Who knows? But it's this buildup of now I don't know where to start. I've got so much that I've lost. I'm overwhelmed with it. And that's the piece that we need to help them start chunking down. So where do you start? What's the first thing? I think that's the other thing. They look at the homework. They look at the assignment. I said, what skills do you need that would have helped you? And the fascinating thing is many of the high school kids says time management. I just don't know how to manage my time. I've got so much on my plate. Where do I start? You talked about asking kids what was really important to them, and mm -hmm. parents didn't make the top of the list or even close. That was the other shocker, because many of these schools also did very simple little surveys. They asked three, I asked them to ask the kids three simple questions, and the kids could answer anonymously. Question number one is, what do you appreciate about what your teachers are doing? Question number two, what do you appreciate about your parents? Question number three is, what's the one word that describes you most? Teachers came up as the caring champions. I love the, the lunch duty teacher. She always sings. She makes me feel good when I walk to the cafeteria. I love the bus driver. He always says, hey, come on in. It's going to be okay. The teacher who's meeting me at the door. Parents, that was the devastating one. About half of the kids said that what they appreciated most of their family, hang on to your hat on this one, was their dog. The <laughs> yeah. dog. The second one was an older sibling who was helping them. When I said, what are the things your parents are doing? It was making me food or taking me to school. It was a few kids who appreciated sitting down and talking to me. But the kids also said, I think it's the parents don't know what to tell us. 
So what would you suggest a parent do to make you feel better? Well, sometimes when they don't know what to say, just sit there calmly next to me, just so I know that you're there. It's okay. You don't have to say anything, but maybe just rub my back or say it's going to be okay or laugh like you used to. Then we're not laughing as a family anymore, and it's really making me feel bad. These are juniors in high school. Yeah, and a lot of that is because these parents are experiencing a lot of stress right now too, right? Oh, absolutely. Listen, in absolutely, we are so stressed. They're worried about finances. They're worried about health. Maybe they've gone through my business, now the gas prices, now a war. It's just the buildup, buildup, buildup. But it's also a time when we got to realize as the parent, the single most important thing that really helps our kids other than we love them when we like them and we've got the firm guidelines. But when all the research on child development comes in and what's a really effective parent, number two on the list is we manage stress so it doesn't spill over to our kids. So we can teach all these kids coping skills. I think every once in a while we need to take the deep breath ourselves and be the mirror so that our children are seeing somebody relaxed so that they can be relaxed. I hear parents all the time say, you know, I talk to my kids and they don't listen. They roll their eyes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they may roll their eyes, but trust me, they're always watching. They may not acknowledge it. They may go, yeah, 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 yeah. And they may not process it for a week. And it may play back in their mind 10 days later, but they hear it and they're always watching. And if they're seeing, even if you put your coffee cup down a little harder that morning, if you've got that frown on your face, if you're sighing deeply, they pick up all of those cues that you're stressed, you're worried, and let me tell you, your home base, and if they feel that they've got a solid home base to return to, then they feel better about venturing out into the world. If they don't know that that home base is going to be there when they come back, if they think you're going to fall apart, then it really shakes their confidence. I get it. Parents have a legitimate reason to be stressed right now. So many of them have lost their jobs. So many of them have lost businesses that they spent 30 years building, and it was a narrow margin. And when everything shut down, they just couldn't sustain it. I get that. But at some point, they've got to decide, I have to focus on what matters, and that's all of us being healthy. And if that means you got to downsize, move from a house to an apartment, Whatever, what matters is that everybody is healthy, everybody's together, and focus on the positives. It can't be that you're just wringing your hands every minute or you're going to teach your child anxiety. Yes. And when we look at stories about children, I, I love some of the, the ones from Anna Freud from years back. It's tracking kids in World War II in England with the Blitz. Who survived that war? I mean, horrific horrific. It wasn't the kids who were catered out and put onto the, the pastors on the wayside of England. It was the children who endeared and made it in the home. I remember a, a, a journalist interviewing me when I was writing Thrivers on resilience. And halfway through it, I realized that this woman was 85-ish and had been a very young kid during World War II. And I said, well, wait a minute, hold the fort here. Let's flip this. How did you make it through a blitz of every night with the air raid sirens and the black curtains and she said, she honestly stopped and said, I don't remember that. I said, come on, you lived in London during that? How could you not? She says, boy, I remember the air raid sirens. But then I remember when we'd pull the black light curtains. And from that moment on, would I remember us playing Ring Around the Rosies and singing? I know my parents must have been scared, but I never felt that. I remember us singing and playing games during that time. And it struck me like, wow, there's the piece that we may be missing. The power we have, and I don't think sometimes we forget, is those everyday little moments that you said, taking the deep breath with our kids, being able to just say, it's okay, we're going to get through it. Maybe there's a positive mantra we can come up with. And if you say it enough, I know sometimes as a teen, you don't want to look like you're lecturing them. But if you say it enough, and it looks like you're just saying it out loud, what happens is, I got it. Oh, I am frustrated. I'll get through it. Pretty soon, your voice becomes your child's inner voice, and they've got something to counter that negative. I always tell parents, look, I want you to 
at least once a week have a family meeting where everybody gets around in the living room or the kitchen table, no phones, no TV, and write out an agenda ahead of time and have a family meeting. And I can see in their face, like, you know, that's so corny. Nobody does that anymore. And I tell them, the more unnatural it feels, the more you need to do it. Because if it feels unnatural to get the family around and talk about how we're doing and what's really important, the more unnatural that feels, the more important it is that you do it because it shouldn't feel unnatural. And I try to tell these parents, look, talk to your kids about things that don't matter. You watch these TV shows and they're medical shows, and what's the first thing they say when they roll somebody into the ER? They say, uh, start an IV with ringer's lactate. Nobody knows what that means. It's just something they say on TV. But what they're doing is they're just getting an IV started in a vein so when they figure out what they do need medicinally, they've got a vein open, and all they have to do is just plug the medicine in. That's what I tell parents. I say, look, Talk to your children about things that don't matter, sports, a video game, the weather, the dog. So when it comes time to talk about things that do matter, you've got that channel open. The first time you talk to them, it's not about something of gravity, and they're going like, what is this? My dad's talking to me? No, you talk to them all the time. It's just now you've got the channel open, and you're talking about something that matters. Talk about anything just so the channel stays open so when it's time to plug in something of importance, it doesn't seem so unusual. You've already got it going. And it's okay to do it while you're walking the dog. It's okay to do it while you're playing a game of horse. It's okay to do it while you're playing with dolls or something. They feel less conspicuous if you're doing something while you're talking about it. Yeah, side-by-side talking sometimes is a lot less threatening than face-to-face talking, but there's another value to that. I'm so into family meetings, but when I looked at thrivers and what makes a thriver, I looked at all the research and found out there's seven traits that are all teachable, and one of those you just nailed, and that's curiosity. A thriver is a kid who's open to ideas and possibilities, and how you learn that, one of the best ways is the family meeting. Not only does it help you just create that relationship of safety, but it also hopefully is the parent. You're allowing that kid to be able to speak up and share his ideas. You don't have to agree with them as long as he's respectful, but we've got to help our kids get out of these safe space zones where they feel like they can't have any kind of riskiness, uh, but they're open to possibilities and say things. And that's exactly the way we can do it. That curiosity and risk adverse Oh, wow. That's so critical for a child. Have a voice. Parents ask me a lot, how do you motivate a kid that's like, yeah, I don't care? Well, I always say appeal to their greed. And that sounds like, what? Well, look, everybody has a currency, right? Everybody wants something. And if you can identify that kid's currency, what's important to them, and you can show them a way to constructively, positively earn that currency and show them that they can earn more than they could ever sneak around and steal, I promise you they're not dumb. If they understand, look, if I do A, B, and C, then I can play my video game or go to my friend's house and not be in trouble for it instead of sneaking out the window or staying up all night after they think I'm in bed playing a video game, if you can appeal to their greed and show them how they can get what they want. I had a parent tell me one time, I said, how's your kid doing in school? I said, well, she's making all A's, but she's just doing it to manipulate me. (laughs) And I'm like, so? She still had to learn the stuff to get the A's to manipulate you. Let her manipulate you. Are you kidding me? She, honest to God, said she's just making A's to manipulate me. And I'm like, well, so be manipulated. 
I, yeah. I could not believe that she said that. But I think you've got to appeal to their greed and let them see, hey, I can earn what I want. Again, that's the kid building from the inside out. The building from the inside out. And remember back when, when we asked all the kids, what's the, the key point? I'm overwhelmed. And then the next thing along the way is I'm just not as motivated as I used to be. One of the things that kids are also saying that goes right back to your point is because they're so overwhelmed with the whole idea. If you've got a kid like that with so much work, there's a couple of simple little things you can do. And that is number one, I know it's a huge project. So what's the first thing you're going to start on? Point them in the direction of the first row or the first problem, little kids in particular. Teach them to do the hardest thing first, because when you're doing homework and all you're doing is sitting there about, oh, my gosh, I got so much to do. Well, get the thing that's really bugging you the most out of the way. In the next two hours, you'll be able to smooth sail. Another one is a coaching strategy that's so wonderful. You uh I had a piano teacher, Mr. White, who was driving me absolutely crazy as a kid, because if I made one mistake anywhere through the problem, as I was going along with the recital, I'd have to start all over again. So all I would do was sit there and worry about where my mistake was. And I hated piano. Then bless Miss Thompson, because she came in and she had a whole different technique that we can use with our kids. She said, Michelle, let's find your one little stumbler, the one little thing that's bugging you. Oh, there it is. Now, let's just practice that one little stumbler over and over and over again. What happened is my stress went down. I started at the beginning and went straight through. That's what a coach does. They never say, you might as well get off the field because you can't do anything right. They rewind the tape and say, it's your foot going that way. Let's make your foot go this way. Let's keep practicing that one thing. You'll get your kid over the stump and be able to keep on going. Little things can make such a difference with kids if you just help them so that they, that unmotivation is really a fear for some kids. Yeah. And fear paralyzes, causes you to get tight. It causes you to have an internal dialogue that's competing with your concentration because you got half of your mind saying, oh my God, what if I screw up? And half of your mind trying to do the task. So now you're working with half of your brain. That doesn't help your efficiency at all. I'm really wondering what your advice is about something. You know, Oxford University researchers use some data from school closures in a disaster zone, and they project that those affected face losing 15% of their earnings every year for the rest of their life because they fall behind academically. They don't close that gap. So that means they fall down the ladder in terms of academic achievement. And Dr. Dimitri Christakis has also done some work in this area that says this quarantine and this remote learning and what's been lost is actually going to cost these young people cumulatively millions of years of life lost. So how do we help them to close that gap? You know, Oxford study says they face losing 15% of their earnings every year for the rest of their life because they won't be as competitive. So they'll take lesser jobs for lesser money. And then you add in Dr. Christakis, he says, because they take lesser jobs, they're usually riskier jobs. They have less quality health insurance, which means later detection of disease, which means worse disease obtains. And so it costs them years on the end of their life. All of this potentiates. So that means the impact of this school closure that we've had, this remote learning that we defaulted to, is going to be impacting for years to come if we don't do something to close the gap. How do we do that? Well, number one is resilience is the answer to it. But I think a big mistake that parents think is there's only a set window. It's too late. Or it started when he was three. It's not too late for any of us or the entire counseling industry would go out of business. So first, we add it to the plate. And second of all, we start chunking this whole thing called resilience. When I was writing Thrivers, my goal was to look at seven traits that are highly correlated to success. Not every kid needs all seven of those. Can you tell us the seven? Oh, sure. The first one you already alluded to, it starts with confidence. Confidence is knowing your strengths. 
and let's help our kid focus more on their strengths as opposed to their weaknesses. 77% of the time, we try to fix the kid as opposed to help them learn where you're going with your strengths. You know, the simplest thing that Emmy Warner discovered, many of the children who really had extreme adversity in their life had a hobby. And the hobby, I didn't make a difference. It was uh, guitar or books or hiking. They would go to that to decompress. Dr. Phil, when I was interviewing kids and said, what's your hobby? Many of them looked at me absolutely dumbfounded. Who's got time for a hobby? So that's number one. We've got to start with that. Maybe we start being talent scouts. We walk around the house and we look at tuning into what our kids are good at as opposed to what their weakness are and start pointing that way. Another one would be empathy. We need social competence. We know that many children who are resilient have ability to connect with others. Now we've got loneliness factors and and social competence and empathy is made up of social skills. So if that's the part that's low, then let's start focusing in on how to help our kids get along. The third one is every kid in the world needs self-control coping strategies, how to get rid of that stress so it doesn't become so darn unhealthy. There's at least 30 strategies in the self-control strategies, that chapter on how to help them. So you find one. You know, here's another thing that kids said, Dr. Phil. They said, I know you're teaching us self-control strategies, but it's not like a one-time course in a health unit. You got to give us a repertoire of stuff that we can actually do in the here and now. Then we got to practice it. Like on the show, I was teaching Kira the one-two breathing, which is so simple. As soon as the stress comes in, when you start identifying what your stress signs are, you take a slow, deep breath from real deep in your abdomen, like you're riding up an elevator, keep focusing on, on the breath, hold it, then slowly let it out. The exhale is twice as long as the inhale. Kids said that really works, but unless you help us practice and practice and practice and practice when we're calm... It doesn't kick in. I want to slow down on that point for a minute because it's so important. There's something called face validity. And sometimes something seems so simple that people discard it because they say, I've got a big problem and you just gave me some little simple trick. And it doesn't seem very fancy, so that's what I mean when I say it lacks face validity. It doesn't seem valid on its face because it's like, oh, come on, it can't be that simple. So it's discarded. And what Dr. Borb is talking about here when she's talking about a one-to-two ratio of inhale and exhale is not as simple as it sounds. It has to do all the way to the cellular level of the exchange of oxygen and calming yourself down. So you can hear something like that and go, oh, yeah, you had some lady on there talking about breathe slow. No, no, she's talking about regulating yourself. It's almost meditative. It causes you to really slow down and exercise control in the face of stress, which again, as I said earlier, you observe yourself doing. And that's just one of several things that she talks about in this chapter on self-control. But I said she wasn't a theoretician, that she puts verbs in her sentences. This chapter on self-control puts your child back in command of their ship. And I can't tell you how important role-playing is. I've talked to people many times about if your child is approached by a predator, you know, you teach them to scream, kick, do this, do that. If you role-play with them in the front yard doing that four or five times, it'll probably save their life versus just telling them. But if you take these things in her self-control chapter and you actually role-play this with your children so they practice it and do it, this can be an absolute game changer. Oh, thank you. Because you also nailed something else on that one that I think we're doing wrong as parents. We tell our kids these things instead of showing them. Any skill is better if you show it, not tell it, then you do it over and over again. 
with little kids, go teach the teddy bear. For bigger kids, go teach someone else. For bigger kids, bigger when teens, they roll their eyes at you and I'm going, come on. The most elite forces in the world called Navy SEALs. This is what they do. You can do this. All you need to do is keep practicing and practicing. The exhale's got to be twice as long as the inhale. Yeah. And these Navy SEALs, they don't do it till they get it right. They do it till they can't get it wrong because their life depends on it. There you go. That's it. I think the other thing with parents when they're stressed is, oh my gosh, how am I going to feed that in? I got so much other things to do. Just if you take one thing like one, two breathing and you weave that in one or two minutes a day and you do it for a month, that alone is going to help your child learn a skill they're going to use the rest of their life. There's dozens of ideas in there. Don't do them all or your kid will never let you read another book. Find what works for your family and you keep working and working and working on it because your new goal as a mom or a dad is to help your, learn, your child learn to cope without you. That's that's how they're going to get through a very uncertain world. They're going to need a new skill set. Yeah. You talk about one of the things in the self-control chapter, and I don't remember what page it's on, so I can't find it right now, but you talk about something I think is so important, which is setting up a priority list and don't lose focus on, number one, what matters. And you talk about, oh, here it is, strengthen your child's ability to focus on what matters. And that's so important. It's a mental discipline for your child, and they will use that the rest of their life. They'll use it when they're 30, 40, 50, 60. If you teach them to focus on what matters and not get down a rabbit trail, these are things that will help them really close the gap right now. We have three months left in this school year, and then you've got the summer where they can really take those things that they need to focus on and close that gap so they come back strong in the fall. That's it. That's it. And then don't stop just because they're coming back in the fall. Yep. We've got this one job when our kids are with us. And believe me, they grow up and they leave. I know. I know. But they do. And we've got this one job to get it right. And we have got to get it right and reboot what we're doing as parents. This is the moment that has come. It's an uncertain world. If there's dozens of skills, but the one thing about a resilient child is that they've got, again, that agency so they can use that one-two breathing. It makes no difference what's working for your kids, says the teens, but give us stuff so we can figure out what works for us, and then we're going to keep practicing and practicing it until we can do it in the moment. Yeah. Your next one is integrity. Talk about that a little bit. Well, Fascinating enough is that integrity is that piece that's that strong moral code and compass. And people go, what that have to do with resilience? There's a whole bunch of different kinds of challenges. Some kinds of challenges are the stress challenges, but integrity would be the challenge like the peer pressure challenge. Is that right? Is that wrong? When we look at kids who get over that hump, they have you as the parent planting very strongly in them what our beliefs are in this family. And that means it's a lot and lot of conversations. Dr. Phil, the easiest thing I've ever seen, there was an incredible girl named Mia Dunn. Every high school teacher said, would you go figure out how that kid came to be such a kid with amazing integrity? So I pulled her aside. She was a senior in a Florida upscale school. And I said, okay, Mia, Every single high school teacher is asking me to find out how you got the integrity. How'd you do it? She laughed and she said, oh, it was how I was raised. I said, okay, yeah. how were you raised? And she said, oh, I remember when I was six, my parents called us, my two brothers and me into the family room. There was all this chart paper and marking pen. My dad said, sit down. We're going to figure out what kind of family we want to be remembered for. So we're going to brainstorm kinds of words. Mom's going to write them all down. I don't care what the words are, respectful, responsible, honest, whatever. We're going to write them all down, and then we're going to vote. At the end of, I don't know how many little bits of time, mom ran out of room on the mark, on the all of the chart paper, and dad said, let's vote. And we all voted for honest. I said, okay, easy. So how'd you remember it? She laughed, and she said, it was impossible not to. My mother must have said it 50 times a day. Remember, we're the honest done. She dropped us off at school. Hey, remember the honest done. We'd be reading a book. Those guys were honest duns. Yep. They said it so much, we became it. Oh, I love that quote, because that's how you instill integrity. You got to be the value system for your kids. Stand up and start embedding it in your child so they become what you want them to be. Yeah, it's so important that you have rituals and traditions in your family. 
And they take pride in that where you just say, we just don't do that. We do this. And that's so important for their identity. So important. Okay, next. Curiosity. Yes, curiosity. Curiosity. That's that kid who thinks out of the box with ideas and people. The easiest one on that one, when you go, what the heck does that have to do with resilience? It's not to raise a kid who's an Albert Einstein creative child, but it's a child who realizes that when they're confronted with a problem, there's no problem so great that can't be solved. And that's what you're looking for for agency. The easiest way to do that from this moment on is when your child comes home or he's sitting there with a problem, don't solve it for him. Instead, what's bugging you, sweetie pie? Say it. And then you're teaching the simplest thing that there is called brainstorming 101. Keep a poker face because some of the ideas they come up with are going to be off the chart. But what's one thing you could have done? What's another thing for a kid who goes, how long do I have to do it for one minute till the sand runs out? But if you keep brainstorming and then you're all done and you go, okay, now get rid of things that aren't safe, wise, or responsible. What's the one thing you're going to choose? Good. Now let's create the plan. What you're doing is creating agency. So when the child is faced with a real life problem, he's got it. And that's, again, what that thriver has. It's okay, mom. I can do it myself. Oh, there's your moment to get a spa day, mom. I got it. Yeah, that's so important. Again, that's them observing themselves, figuring something out. And even if they're off the charts with some of them, that's so important. What we were talking about before, of how we're preparing these kids in school, but it's perseverance. Yes, it's perseverance. Here's the problem, Dr. Phil, is that every parent wants the kid to persevere right this minute. And what I discovered is that of these seven traits, you got to have that self-control in order to have the buffer or self-confidence is really wonderful in order to help that kid persevere. In fact, the other thing I learned that was my aha moment is that isn't one trait or two traits, but you put any two together, they multiply the outcome. So it's like superpowers for a child. Self-control and perseverance, wonderful. Carol Dweck has got the greatest solution on perseverance. Stop praising them for the end product. What you get? Did you get the 100%? What's the grade? Instead, you make success in your house become a four-letter word, G-A-I-N. Yesterday, you were here, sweetie. You got 33 right. Tomorrow, you're going for 34. It's one step, one step, baby step. Success is always in steps. You never win the gold medal tomorrow. You win it in little teeny increments along the way. And and that's the goal on perseverance. So wonderful on the science that tells us how to help our kids hang in there and not quit. That's why I was telling those kids the other day when you and I were together, compare yourself to you, not to somebody else. You don't know what they're doing. Compare yourself to you. How did you do versus last week or last month? Are you making progress? Hold yourself to your standard. That's so important. And then the last one you mentioned is optimism, which is so important. Yeah. Number one is, I think maybe we got to put the pause button and think about, it's been tough for us, but you're watching a group of kids who have been every day for the last two years, turning on a TV set and seeing how many people died today. Now you've got a live feeds of a horrific war. You've got images that are really impacting our kids. And many of them say, I just feel hopeless. I'm really worried about the world. I think this one is one of the easiest things from NYU that said, images that our kids see either elevate their empathy and their optimism, or they create doom and gloom. Okay, one of the easiest things you can do on that one, I think we don't do nearly enough. Look what the research says and apply it. Go to the back page of the newspaper every day. There's incredible, glorious stories about real kids doing wonderful stuff. Cut out the news, blow it up. Now you got another family meeting or an entertaining just dinner discussion. Did you hear about true story? Here, I love this one. The two kids in Ohio, they were so worried about the neighbor next door. Empathy 101, because she's 80. She's all by herself, mom. She's so lonely. Can't we do something? What can you do, sweetie? I love mommy. What can you do, kids? Can we drag our cellos to her porch and do a cello concert? Good idea, said mom. They drag their cellos, go to the porch, knock on the door. They social distance. They do a little cello concert. All the neighbors come out. They're crying. Mom's crying. She puts it on Facebook. It goes live. What happens is, the virtual of all the rest of the children in the world look at it and go, I can do that too. You're 
cultivating their heart. You're seeing tuba concerts in Sacramento, flute concerts in New York. We've got to show our kids the good stuff that's doable. Now they put it in their hearts. They've got the agency. That's what builds hope. Yeah, I got a great lesson right after 9-11. I was still doing the Oprah show then, and you couldn't fly and all of that, and I had to get special dispensation to get to Chicago. But we did a show with myself, Oprah, and Laura Bush, first lady at the time, We were talking to a bunch of young kids, and it was so telling about the importance of watching the news with your children, because these kids told us that they were watching the news, and they'd watch it on this channel, then another channel, then another channel, then another channel, and they thought all the buildings were being knocked down. Because they would see one angle on ABC, another angle on NBC, another angle on Fox, another angle on CNN. And because they were watching it by themselves, they thought every building in America was being knocked down. I mean, it was bad enough that the Twin Towers were knocked down, but they thought a hundred buildings were being knocked down. And I was sitting there thinking, oh my God. And ever since then, I've been saying, If your child is at an age where they're going to watch the news, watch it with them so you can discuss it and talk about what's happening and don't let them overinterpret. Yes, yes. And the other thing is we think, oh, gosh, I'm not going to talk about it. Then he won't worry about it. In today's world, they've heard about it and they've got to get the angle from you, the mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. So it's calmer down. And that's exactly what we've got to do. Give our kids some hope about the world and let it be filtered through you that it's okay, we can get through it. You know, Dr. Phil, there's another study that came out, I just remembered from Ohio, that they said kids who got through resilience in terms of tough times were also ones when parents would say, hey, we as a family have done through some things. Here's what happened to your grandma or your great grandpa or your great grandfather when they saw their family as being a resilient family of what their own family members had gone through. They were more likely to endure. That's a great lesson to be able to say, I know this is tough now, but they went through, you know, some the bubonic plague way back then and they made it and we'll make it too. Yeah, it's so great to talk about family history and letting them know how people have persevered. Talk to your school counselor if you're concerned about your kids, because there are tools now. You know, there's this computer adaptive screen for suicidal youth, the Cassie, as it's called, and it's a little screening device that takes less than 90 seconds to fill out, and it predicts suicidal risk in the next 90 days with over 80% accuracy. It's a pediatric screening device that is not suggestive, and it can be used by counselors. It's used in pediatric emergency departments, and it's available. If you're really concerned, you know, don't bury your head in the sand. Find out. Ask the questions and talk to your school about it. I don't think we should overtreat kids, but we also shouldn't bury our head in the sand. So don't get surprised about stuff like that by being in denial. Oh, I'm with you on that one. I think the two worst words I hear from parents are if only after a tragedy hits. I, I think the other thing is parents, you know your kid better than anybody. You may not be have the medical training, but if you notice that your child is too different and it's lasting too long, you're too worried or it's spilling over into too many other areas then pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and start getting some counseling. Find out, is this a child that's got some issues? What are we going to do about it? We've got to work a little bit more proactively for our kids. Don't let the stigma control you. Don't think for a second. Don't think for a second that it's a weakness. It's just something that you have to deal with. I think this has been such an important conversation, and I want to remind everybody that Dr. Borba's book is Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons why some kids struggle and others shine. And she talks about the seven teachable skills that set happy, healthy, high-performing kids apart. And the important word in that is teachable. 
these aren't things that you just are going to read this to see whether or not you won the genetic lottery. You're going to read this and say, okay, these are teachable skills. These are things that I can instill in my child, and I can learn to set up an environment, set up a relationship, set up a family dynamic that fosters and supports these skills in my child. And it's going to require you to do some things differently, I just bet you. It's going to cause you to back off some. It's going to cause you to try to set up an environment so they can find themselves. So it's not just about your kids. It's about the whole family. And I couldn't recommend this book more highly. It's Thrivers. You can find it everywhere. Books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere. By the way, congratulations on this. Thank you. What a great job. You can find it in hardback, paperback. You can find it anywhere, and it really should become a manual. You and I have been working together, I guess, what, almost 12, 15 years, something like that now. But I think you've really, you've hit it out of the park with this one. Oh, thank you so much. So are you going to head back to this part of the world soon? I am. Tomorrow, one more time, I'm working with the Ministries of Education tomorrow. It's fascinating, Dr. Phil. Everybody everywhere around the world is concerned, but the best thing is visionaries who are going, so what are we going to do proactively about it? There's the answer. We don't want to be playing catch up. We want to try to get ahead of this because we don't know what's going to happen right now. So, uh, but we do know these kids are going to have a life ahead of them and we owe it to them to give them the best chance possible to have the life that they deserve. So you're out there making that happen and doing it. So God bless you for the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Michelle, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it.